0: Those words from Hymn 43 are from our scripture reading. They're from Hebrews 11. So turn with me later on in your New Testament. To Hebrews chapter 11. We'll read that entire chapter and right into the beginning of verse 12. So Hebrews 11, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand the the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city, which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them from afar, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had Called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten Son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. Concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of his each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel, and gave instructions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents, because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as, on, as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness, were made strong, became violent in battle, turned to fight the enemies, the the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having retained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Now let's turn to the Gospel of Luke, where we will find our text at the end of Luke chapter 9. Luke 9, the closing verses 57 through 62. Luke 9, 57. And there we read about the Lord Jesus Christ and his disciples. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's sing after the sermon from Psalm 119, stanzas 1 and 3. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, does your house have a family room? I would think you do. You have a kitchen, dining room, bedroom. You also have a family room or a living room, a place where you hang out as a family. Well, you know, as a church, in a way, you also have a family room. That's what this is, right here. Here, you get to show. Here, you get to gather as the family, the family of God. Every Sunday, this is one of the blessings about gathering together in person, You get to show, we get to proclaim very clearly that we belong. We belong to others, and we belong to our God. In years past, there were other things that church buildings showed. For instance, in the Middle Ages, in some churches in Europe, and you can still see this, when you come into the church building, right at the entranceway, There's often carvings and things like that. In some churches, there's the depiction of martyrs. People who had been killed for their faith. Often now depicted with crowns and palm fronds, symbols of victory. But it's like when you came into those church buildings... You were not greeted, you know, just by a a smiling usher or someone like that. You were greeted by those who had given up their lives as believers. Sort of like a Hebrews 11, but in stone. You might think that Sundays, you know, Sundays are my days to relax. Sundays are a day of rest, aren't they? And Certainly they are, but Sundays are not days to sort of escape and ignore reality. Let us not forget the church of Jesus Christ is filled with martyrs, those who made the ultimate sacrifice, believers who would, well, give up their lives because they would not give up their faith, their Savior. You know, they say that when there's trouble or danger, there's two basic human responses. Maybe you've heard this fight or flight. There's some truth to that, I think. Some of us, you know, when we face a bit of hostility, yeah, we, we want to fight back. Someone puts us down, we put them down. Others of us are more tempted to avoid conflict and flee. So there's sort of swords or silence. But there is another path. And that's what you see in the martyrs. There is the path of sacrifice. The path of loving. Loving your God, even loving your enemies. There is the path of making a statement against our world. Not a statement of our own rights. Not a statement about the injustices that we've suffered. But a statement of of love. A statement of trust. A statement that we entrust ourselves completely into the care of our God. And that is a pretty powerful sermon. And that is the sermon we all are called to preach. Now, we we don't have martyrs flanking our church building doors. But all of us have that prayer that we just prayed at our baptism, marking our entrance into the, the people of God. We pray... That he or she, following him day by day, may joyfully bear her cross and cleave to him in true faith, firm hope, and ardent love. Grant that she, comforted in you, may leave this life, which is no more than a constant death, and on the last day may appear without terror before the judgment seat of Christ your Son. So, based on that, I've structured the theme and points of this sermon under this theme, cleave to your Savior. And these three situations of our text, we're going to see them a little bit through the lens, too, of this prayer and baptism, that we are to cleave to the Savior in true faith, firm hope, and ardent love. So here in Luke chapter 9, the Lord Jesus Christ drops a bomb. He speaks about the cross, a cross for himself, and almost immediately he also goes on to speak about a cross for all those who follow him as well. I understand that a few months ago you did have a sermon on that passage, and maybe you can recall that the cross, it's not just sort of any kind of suffering that you might have, I know sometimes we use the word cross like that in sort of a bland way. You know, that's just the cross I have to carry, some sort of struggle I have. But the cross, first of all, is actually hatred, hostility, ridicule, and shame. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ has to face. That's what we all must face. Well, then in verse 51 of this chapter, that all becomes real, because now we read Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, he knows that there he faces his death. But then the context of our text, that seems to only cause further troubles, Jesus at this time, he's further north in ancient Israel. He's in Samaria. And when they hear that he wants to go to Jerusalem, they don't like it. The Samaritan village that he wants to stay at refuses to welcome him. The Samaritans want nothing to do with Jerusalem. They want nothing to do with those who are going Jerusalem. Jerusalem even. There are lots of reasons why the Christian life is tough and here you see another. The Lord Jesus Christ and those who follow him it doesn't line up with the rest of the world. It doesn't even line up with other religious people. There are competing beliefs, competing priorities, competing loyalties. That's what you see here. The Samaritan village that refuses to welcome the Lord Jesus Christ and His disciples. Do not be fooled. There is no sort of easy live and let live kind of thing, kind of attitude in our world. So then how our text begins, you might think, well, this is wonderful. Now, it happened as they journeyed on the road. They're not just out for a walk. They're journeying on the road away from the Samaritan villages where they've met such hostility that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. What a beautiful statement, especially here, of all places. And You know, you find that throughout the Gospels. Times when when people surprise you. Good teacher, what must I do to be saved? Son of David, have mercy on me. We should never make assumptions about people or how they're going to respond to the Gospel. This man or woman is getting the idea that commitment and allegiance to Jesus is what is needed. Wherever you go, I will follow you. That's the beginnings of real discipleship. Because real discipleship is not determined by us. We don't call the shots. I will follow you, Lord, wherever you lead me. It sounds a little bit like Ruth or Elisha. And perhaps this person, they do know their Bible. Maybe they're making an allusion to that. They don't want to just sort of be a fair-weather friend. They understand discipleship is about commitment. So how does the Lord Jesus respond to this man? Does he commend the man? Ah, wonderful to hear Come along with us. We're going to Jerusalem. No, Christ gives a sober warning. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In the Gospel of Matthew, we learn that this man was a scribe, a teacher of the law. So he knows What it's like to learn and and to teach. He knows that it takes effort and determination. But will he see that Jesus is not just some sort of ordinary rabbi? Being a disciple of Jesus is not like, you know, in these days, 200 years ago, There were a lot of people that sort of traveled around with people who listened to them, who followed them in a very literal way. But Jesus is not one of those people that you can just sort of follow in that easy way. This man is a teacher or a scribe. But following Jesus is going to be something else. Did you know, for instance, the Greek word for school? School is actually a Greek word, skole. The Greek word for school just means leisure, rest. That's what you do. If if you're even a young child, you don't have to work finally, you know, 16 hours a day, six days a week like it was in the past, what do you do if you have free time? You go to school. Yeah, I know school can be, be tough. But school actually originally was, ah, when things were not tough, we could learn. But being a disciple of Jesus is not sort of the old idea of school, where you just sort of learn. There's no comfy or cushy life for you because there was no comfy or cushy life for Jesus. Just look at the Lord Jesus Christ. He was born in a stable, his crib was a manger. Shortly, his parents had to flee to Egypt to avoid being killed. He grew up in Nazareth. Nazareth was a pretty rough place. I imagine it to be, I don't know, a little bit like Fort McMurray or something like that. When Christ begins his ministry in Nazareth, his own town would have none of it. After his first sermon, how do they respond? They drive him out of the town and want to push him off a cliff edge. Yes, people love him, but people also hate him. He was despised and rejected by men, said the prophecy of Isaiah 53. And he is the one in charge of our apprenticeship as disciples. Even more, he's not just in charge of it, he's also the the pattern and the model for our life as disciples. In our day and age, there are a lot of things to look at. And I'm not just talking about our screens. There are a lot of things to get consumed with. There are a lot of things to put before your eyes. Oh, I want my life to be like this or that. We need to train our eyes, our attention more and more. In Hebrews 12, were those words that we heard, fix our eyes upon Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Fix your eyes on Jesus. We all have a kind of spiritual ADHD. Our faith needs to have focus. Our faith needs to be focused on our Savior, When we have Him in front of us, only then do we begin to see the path that we need to go. Only then do we see what what God wants of us. Only then do we see each other correctly. And then we will also see if we have Jesus before us, we will not be welcomed here on earth but we will be welcomed where it matters. In heaven. We will not have any security really here on earth. But we will have security. We do have security where it truly matters with our Savior. We need to realize as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ that this world is not our home. And we will not try to make it our home. We will not make that demand of it that it be our home. Instead, we will see ourselves as soldiers fighting in enemy territory. We will see ourselves as pilgrims on our journey to the great destination. We will see ourselves as exiles looking for our true home in hope and confidence. and we will also tell ourselves not to worry. Christ had nowhere to lay his head. But yet he knew that his life was always in the hands of his Heavenly Father. When he could not lay down his head, he did lay down his life into his Father's care. And that's the shape of true faith. That's what we teach our children as well we teach our children to trust and also to entrust trust in our god and entrust ourselves into the care of our god that takes us to our second situation So the first man somewhat enthusiastically volunteers. In the second situation, we do hear Christ speak first. Then he said to another, Follow me. But this second person has a particular predicament. First, let me go and bury my father, he says. Now, if there ever was a a legitimate excuse, well, this would be it. Duty to your parents. That was not only something very culturally important 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. It still is today. But duty to your parents, that is commanded even in the law of God, the fifth commandment. In fact, in the Talmud, which is this collection of Jewish teaching, From this time, it says that if someone is confronted by a dead relative, they're free from from all sorts of rituals that normally you would have to do in the law. You don't have to say the 18 benedictions, you don't have to say the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. Burying your loved ones, then burying your father, it's hard to imagine a greater duty. But we also need to know a little bit about Jewish burial practices of the first century. Do you know how the Jews 2,000 years ago buried their loved ones? When somebody first died, they moved the body to the family tomb, the family crypt, right? A, A sort of cave of sorts. And for about a week, there would be a period of mourning right there in the tomb. And I've seen depictions, seen pictures too. Sometimes that even hollowed out a little place so that it'd be a little more comfy. You could stand up in these fairly small caves. Then after a week, the body was left to decompose for weeks and months. About a year later you would go back to the tomb and you would collect the bones because that's all that would be left in this fairly hot, dry climate. And you would put the bones in a sort of a, like a little coffin, a, a bone box. It's called an ossuary and archaeologists have actually unearthed quite a few of them. And then you would stick this bone box up on a shelf. In the tomb. This particular man is out following the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's not right now in that initial seven day period of mourning that happened in the tomb. But sometime in the future, perhaps a year from now, even, he knows he's going to have to pay his final respects to his father. Collect the bones and put them in a bone box and complete the burial. So do you see now why Christ responds the way he does? Let the dead bury the dead. I know that there used to be an interpretation that this was the spiritually dead have to bury the spiritually dead. But but no, this is just based on the Funeral practices of the day. There's plenty of those already in the family tomb. Let them take care of your father's bones. Either way, this is a very shocking command. First, let me go and bury my father. That's a very good and noble thing. Caring for your parents in life and death, what can be greater? I can imagine some of the gossip that might go around. Has this man no respect for his father? He can't wait. What are a few months? When the father has given him years, what could be more important than the last duty to a dearly departed father? Our Western society, I think it's no mystery to say we are rapidly losing our sense of duty. We don't understand the call of duty. You young people understand what I mean. Call of duty, strangely, is no call of duty at all. They had much more a sense of duty in the past. But even in that world, they had a great sense of duty. The Lord Jesus Christ says, there is now an even greater duty. Following me, listening to me. This is now your life. This must trump every other duty. This must rearrange all your priorities. Following the Lord Jesus Christ, do we see? It can never be. Just sort of another thing we do. Another interest in our lives, this has to have weight. It has to have the greatest weight that we can possibly give it. Does your walk with God have weight? Do you ask yourself, as you live your life, today, tomorrow, Do you ask yourself, what does my Savior want me to to do, to hear, to think in my marriage, at my work? What does my Savior tell me to do? What can I do that would show Him honor and love? And this particular man also gets a specific command. Instead, you go and preach the kingdom of God. This man wants to fulfill his great duty to his Father. But will he see? Will we see? There's not just a greater duty, but there is a greater reality. Something has come in the Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God well, that we spoke of this morning. This needs to be announced and proclaimed. This man wants to take care of the dead. But there are the living who need to know about the kingdom of God. This man sees a duty to grieve. But he needs to see there is a greater duty to bring hope as he speaks about what God has done in Jesus Christ. And so life cannot just go on. This man's life gets interrupted, even more than that, it gets diverted in a completely new direction. It's like in a war or in a pandemic, Where all the usual things are suspended and upended. Do we know what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? It's like wartime measures apply to us as believers, we need to reorder our lives far beyond any sort of pandemic or approach to a pandemic. We as Christians should be busy even dropping good things, even dropping family duties because the King has come so that others may be blessed, others may hear His gospel, others may be brought into His kingdom the mission, the person, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ is that great. Yes, the Titanic is going down. But hope has come in Jesus Christ. This man is willing to touch unclean bones. But now he is to be willing to minister to unclean sinners. That's far more urgent And that's the call we all need to follow. And then there's one more situation, our third point. A third person comes to Jesus. I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. You might know from 1 Kings 19, this is exactly what Elisha asks of Elijah. And Elijah says, sure, go home, say goodbye to your family before you come and follow me. And, Eli- and Elisha does go back home, and he slaughters the oxen, even has a sort of little party, and then says all his goodbyes. This man knows his Bible. Let me be like Elisha, Lord. My family needs a proper Goodbye. And how does our Lord respond? Again, some very, fairly harsh-sounding words. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You know how it is when you plow. Okay, maybe, maybe I don't. Maybe some of you don't either because now you've got GPS and all that sort of stuff. But if if you start to look back, your line is going to be all over the place. I mean, especially in the past where you've got to have two hands on this plow and an animal pulling it. And what if you hit a rock or something like that? It'd be disastrous. When you plow, you need to look ahead with everything you have. And that's the same. Being a Christian, being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, we look ahead. We have a single-minded focus. It's, it's a no regrets, all in sort of thing. There's no looking back at our former life. There's no looking back at what life would be like if we were not a Christian There's no looking back at the world and all its glamour and glory. You know, that's what Lot's wife did. Looking back to her home, fine home in Sodom, and she turned into a pillar of salt. These last two fellows, they think there's things that need to be done first. But the Lord Jesus Christ says no. Nothing is greater, nothing is more important than following me. And this needs to be your everything. Sometimes we talk about how you know God needs to be first in your life. And and I understand that sediment, and, and there's something good to that. But actually that's not quite right. God Is not just first in your life. God is everything. You and I, as disciples, we have only one focus, and that's to follow our Lord Jesus Christ. There's not sort of a list in your life. First, God and the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, and then my wife, and then my children, and then my my work, and then my leisure. The Lord Jesus Christ is everything. He then will tell you to love your wife and love your children and do your work honestly. Absolutely. But it's always the Lord Jesus Christ that we are listening to, that we are following, that we are loving in all areas of life. And so it's like, you know, in a marriage, you cannot be only partly committed. You cannot jump across a ditch halfway. Your faith needs to be your all. You cannot know the truth of the Word of God by just sort of learning. You need to be living it. The path of knowledge. Growing in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and of His grace. Peter talks about that in in 2 Peter 3. The path of growing in the knowledge and grace of our God is the path of living and following. It's the path of submission, surrender. And lastly, this is also how we persevere. I was reading a few weeks ago a bit from a pastor from the former Soviet Union. And he was writing about his ministry. Persecution was growing. And he he saw it growing even more. How did my congregation survive? Well, he said... They learned commitment. They resolved to be committed. They learned the Christian life was not just sort of a short sprint, but a marathon. I told them constantly from my pulpit that the Christian life was not a walk in the park. I reminded them the Lord Jesus Christ sacrificed for them. That they also must be prepared to sacrifice for Him. How do we endure hardship? And it does seem that hardship is on the horizon for us as Christians. We need to be resolved, we need to recognize and rejoice. Our faith is not just a little thing. Our God and our Savior are not little. His person is great. His promises are great. His demands are also great. Amen.